This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. What's that? You want to come and see us record the podcast live? Well, you're in luck. Join us at Podcast Live in London on Sunday, April the 7th. Go to podcastlive.com. And as a regular listener, you can get a 10% discount off your tickets by using the code TIMES19. Right then, down to business. Brexit seems to be taking a break from the news. Well, we've still got three and a bit weeks left, so that's ages. Instead, it's International Women's Day later this week, so I'm delighted to be joined by three of the most formidable, opinionated and informed people we ever have on the Red Box podcast. Campaigner Caroline Criado-Perez has already secured victory in getting a woman, Jane Austen, on banknotes and then another, Melissa Fawcett, among the statues in Parliament Square. Now she's taken on an even bigger challenge, rewiring the whole of society, especially the data which drives it, which is, shall we say, quite male-dominated. Anne Ashworth, the brilliant Times Money and Property editor on why women must learn to be riskier with their money. But first, Rachel Sylvester, the Times columnist and interviewer that most of the Cabinet are too scared to be interviewed by, on one minister's battle for number 10. Two years ago, Amber Rudd stood in for Theresa May during the general election televised leaders' debates, but now she's banned by number 10 from doing live broadcast interviews and has become the new bete noire for the Brexiteers. She's decided not to be a candidate for the Tory leadership if there's a contest this year because she knows she couldn't win it among the party membership. But if the Conservatives were serious about looking like a modern, open, mainstream party, they'd be looking for someone just like her. Which you sort of think things have gone bad in number 10 if now Amber Rudd is public enemy number one, like the one person who is willing to go out and do anything. Like you said, stood in for leaders' debates, you know. Just a few days after her, hours actually after her father had died, she, she took one for Theresa May and she, Prime was too scared to go onto the televised leaders' debates and Amber Rudd went in her place. And, 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 then, and then last year took a bullet again over Windrush, you know, a policy put in place by Theresa May. Uh, a dysfunctional home office that she inherited from Theresa May, but she was the one who had to carry the can for it and resigned. Yeah. She's back now as working venture secretary, but um, because she's dared to have an opinion on Brexit. 
and also what's interesting, I think, is she did this article last week, a couple of weekends ago, with two other colleagues, Greg Clark, David Gorg, but it's Amber Rudd that they're gunning for. Um, and they're really going for her. Uh, quite a lot of those around Amber Rudd wonder if there's an element of misogyny in this, that, you know, you go for the woman, she's the most high-profile one, she's the greatest threat. But I think it goes beyond Brexit, because actually this all... She hasn't been or done a live broadcast, I'm told, since Christmas. So this predates the current rows over a no-deal Brexit. And I think it's because she has become the champion of this more compassionate, one-nation style of conservatism that, uh, you know, on universal credit at the Department for Work and Pensions, she's been calling for changes to this flagship policy uh, to make it more generous to the poor and deal with some of the problems with the sort of gap when people first claim it and that sort of thing. She's admitted that um, the rise in food banks is linked to universal credit, which infuriated number 10. <laughs> which, um, which, which to anyone else seems entirely logical. Yeah. If and people she, have less money, they're more likely to go to a food bank. To and in Amber Rudd's own help. constituency of Hastings, I think there was a 95% rise in food bank use in the first year after universal credit was introduced. So she's seen it. She knows it. And by you know admitting there's a problem and acknowledging the problem, you can then start to solve it. But number 10 hate anything that, that kind of admits um, they might be doing anything wrong. Do you think that, because uh, I take your point about misogyny and the, the particular amount of vitriol that she attracts, do you think it's also partly because she's much better and more distinctive than, I mean, like you said, David Gork and Greg Clark both have their merits, but I suspect quite a lot of people listen to the podcast which struggle to pick out, <laughs> you know, spot well, which is which in a lineup. She's She's definitely become the kind of figurehead leader of that wing of the party. Um, so therefore, she's a greater threat and so a bigger target. Uh, and there's been a whole pattern of the Brexiteers going for Remainers, whether it's Philip Hammond they went for, uh, Mark Carney at one point, and she's the latest target. But I think what's made this particularly toxic is the sense or the suspicion that some in Downing Street uh, are fueling it. Often the, the, the difference when it's a woman versus a man is that, yes, they have gone for Philip Hammond and, yes, they did go for Mark Carney, but it's sort of less of a personal attack. I feel like that's the difference when it's women. It becomes much more uh, vicious and vitriolic about her as a person rather than her policies. That tends to be the way women get abused. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's quite a lot of quite personal stuff about her and her brother, who's mm. Roland Rudd, who runs the people's vote campaign so obviously he's very pro-european she's also pro-european but she's not being told by her brother what to do i think because she's a woman there's a sense that oh somehow she must be beholden to the men in her life yeah um you know she once said she was once defined as somebody's husband because she was married to a.a gill the brilliant sunday times restaurant critic and then she's defined as somebody's brother but actually she's more powerful than any of these yeah. men um, um. The most extraordinary thing is this is happening under a female <coughs> prime minister, that we're allowing a relatable woman to be vilified in this way. That I find most shocking. And if you think about how a great many people would perceive this situation, is it's the very things that is that are putting people off politics. They are slightly disgusted by the level of debate, by the by this kind of narrative. And I think that the broader repercussions of this kind of thing are really quite toxic for society and indeed for our democracy. Because you speak to so many people now who would say, well, 
I can't support either party. However, when you speak to them about individuals, there are a group of women MPs who seem to cross party boundaries. People like Luciana Berger, people like Jess Phillips, to whom anybody can relate whatever their politics. And surely they must be the central plank of, of, of the future. Which part of this can they not get? There's a really interesting thing, I think you're absolutely right, Anne, that the, this new independent group of MPs that's been set up, two-thirds of them are women. That's a very different field to the other mainstream parties. And I think there is a sense, particularly among women in the House of Commons, that the the kind of um, culture of the main parties has gone wrong and, and this sort of rush to the extremes. Um, perhaps women are more pragmatic, perhaps women are more kind of you know, you can see both sides of the argument less strident in their views. And there has been a gap, which uh, a huge number, um, you know, to have two thirds of the group being women is really interesting. I don't think it's necessarily just either about women being less strident in their views. I think that, you know, the way women are socialised is to not want to be in this extremely toxic, antagonistic way of doing politics. Um, I'm not saying that women are biologically nicer or anything like that, but the way we're brought up is to be more collaborative. Um, and the way that the two parties have gone to these two extremes, um, with the shouting on either side about traitors, I think is incredibly unwelcoming to women. And I think it's very very worrying in terms of trying to increase female representation in Parliament, because there are going to be lots of women watching this thinking, why on earth would I go into this? You just wouldn't want to. Yeah, I interviewed Luciana Berger last week, actually. Yeah, and no, I don't think Saturday I've... Saturday Times magazine. Magazine. Yeah. I don't think I've ever That's been... Such an amazing interview. I've never been so shocked by an interview. Yeah. You know, she's had threats to her unborn child. She's had vile anti-Semitic but also misogynistic abuse and often the two are linked she says her female colleagues get much worse abuse she's mm -hmm. shown some of the emails tweets and things to male colleagues and they can't believe it it's this sort of somehow you're Jewish but you're also a woman therefore you're a greater target mm. hey, Caroline you've been on the receiving end of some pretty vile stuff I mean, you talked about it when you were on the podcast mm. last time um, and yet you sort of you you keep on I mean, you, you've talked about how your book you, you, has already attracted, because well, obviously no, none of the people who criticise you are going to read it, so they're going to criticise <laughs> you for it, just because they've read a bit about the book. Mm -hmm. is, is, are you sort of constantly, before you do anything, are you having to prepare for that sort of Absolutely. tidal wave? Yeah, um, and I have been incredibly nervous about this book coming out, because I know that it is challenging a lot of structures, it's challenging the way a lot of people see the world, um, and they're not going to like it. And I'm, I'm expecting a backlash, I'm expecting a pushback, and indeed that has already begun. Um, but uh, I sort of feel personally, because you know I've been dealing with this now for sort of six or seven years, um, I'm kind of used to it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't affect me and that I don't dislike it intensely. Um, but I feel like I have a responsibility now to keep going. Um, because this comes from a place of fear. It comes from a place of outrage that women are allowed to have a political opinion, um, allowed to take public space up that, um, the type of men who send women abuse think that belongs, you know, they think it belongs to, to men and that's why they react like this. Um, and I think the only way that this is going to stop is when it becomes just normal for a woman to occupy public, public space in the same way that men do. Um, so I feel like the women who can take it kind of have a responsibility to take it so that the women who are currently looking at it thinking, I just couldn't cope with that, one day won't have to. Rachel and Anne, you both write columns with your picture at the top and, you know, it's online and you tweet and are you on the receiving end of abuse as well? 
it's as if you weren't entitled to have an opinion. Mm. That that the having an opinion and possibly a challenging opinion is per se a male thing. And I come back to my earlier comment. We elected a woman prime minister in this country in 1979. That's a long time ago now. How is it that we seem not to have amongst a substantial numbers of people moved on to see women as human? It is a bewildering thing, as if uh, when a man has an opinion, it's a challenging opinion. That's interesting. A woman has an opinion. For some people, it seems to challenge the whole basis of their being, and they cannot tolerate it. I'm a mother of a son, and you just wonder how this thinking develops. What is there in our culture that brings about this kind of thinking. I would just be very interested to hear from people. I've been thinking about this a lot recently, about how women have to be perfect, have to be saints, really, to be allowed to have an opinion. And so I think that's part of the thing about if they have a challenging opinion. You know, the, the it's actually something I, I cover in the book a bit, that women who are seen as seeking power, it's, it's experienced as a norm violation. So women who have a challenging opinion, because basically women are meant to be seen as the caregivers, the people who are there to make other people feel better. So if they are suddenly uh, voicing these opinions that make people feel uncomfortable, you know, it's not just it, on top of the sort of norm violation of a woman being in a public space, the norm violation of a woman having a political opinion in a male sphere. On top of that, she has a political opinion that makes you feel bad. Are you kidding me? You know, and I think that that's a lot of what it's about. I don't understand why a lot of uh, it's worse often from the left or as bad oh, from the yeah. left as from the right. And you think, I think it's the... worse in a way and because they gaslight that? you with it. You yeah. know, they pretend that they're feminist, but actually they're just as misogynistic. But it's... why is that? Is that because you look at the sort of powerful women, whether it's Barbara Castle, Harriet Harman, through the Labour Party, Jess Phillips, Luciana Berger before she left, as you said, and they they have been so many sort of yeah. role model women on the left. But well, they, that, I think that well, that's they... actually why. Yeah. So I read this fascinating study, which again I reference in the book, which was actually in America looking at the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, and how it was sort of easier for Republican women to rise to the top because they were able to be tokens. But because there were so many much so many more women in the Democrat Party, they actually represented a challenge to male power. And, and as a result, we're less likely to rise to the top. And maybe and I just on, the, think on the hard left, there's a threat to the sort of class war issue. So mm. if politics is seen all through the issue of class and wealth and inequality. Then feminism or women's equality is a distraction. Mm. And, a, you know, there's something wasting our time. We need to yeah. be dealing only with wealth inequality. Well, I mean, I think it's similar to the way anti-Semitism is handled by the hard left. Been noticing, because I didn't really know that much about anti-Semitism until we started seeing it so much more. Mm. Um, And I can't help but notice really striking similarities between the way anti-Semitism and misogyny function in that there is this sense of disgust, but also mixed with envy. And this idea that women and Jewish people are somehow behind the scenes pulling strings. So either a woman's behind a powerful man or, you know, the Jews are behind the global banking system, whatever it is. But I, I find it so fascinating. I really want someone to write a, a long read, sort of exploring the links. But there's also I think I think so a, a sort of hierarchy of victimhood, isn't mm. there? So women are somewhere near the bottom, Jewish people are near the bottom, because they're, and 
I don't know, Palestinians, working class. It's mm. sort of, there's a whole hierarchy yeah. in which... Forgetting you, that forgetting Palestinians that... can be women, working class can be exactly. women. You know? <laughs> um, it is as if that women were presumed always to be taking some sort of unfair advantage. Yes. That what you have, you've not worked for, that you have got thanks to your wiles or thanks to the fact that your father was somebody. Oh, it seems now as if your brother has an opinion. <laughs> But it is so always sort of cheated this, your way there. Yes, than on there, your own there, yeah, yeah. That a man is there by me, by merit, and there was a very. I read a very interesting piece in an American newspaper about just how many slightly mediocre men rise to positions of great power. <coughs> whereas, Chris Grayling. Oh yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> whereas interesting target the, 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 for number ten this week, Amber Rudd over Chris Grayling. Yeah, amazing. Um, but at the same time, that that would be no woman. There are very few women in those sort of positions. I know Am- Amber Rudd lost a job because she wasn't aware of one target that hadn't crossed her desk. And yet Chris Grayling can bring the entire country to a halt. And that's absolutely fine. But I wonder if it's a cultural thing. You know, let's remember the Kennedys. They never apologised. They never explained. And I think women do tend to justify themselves mm. more. And I think that is a cultural thing. Whereas a man will decide that, that's a massive big issue where I really made a load of mistakes. I don't mention it. It does not exist. Whereas a woman would be pouring over it, apologising. And I think maybe that's something that we need to unlearn. Caroline, do you think there is an issue of, of women being more likely to apologise than, than men? So the issue is that, yes, there is, you know, there, Anne's absolutely right. I think that women are more likely to sort of worry about the mistakes they've made and, and talk about them in that way. Truth is that they kind of have to because women are dealt with much more harshly for having made the mistake. So I don't think it's actually necessarily helpful advice to tell women stop apologising so much, Um, because if they don't apologise, they will also be attacked. So it's a sort of, unfortunately, between a rock and a hard place. Um, I think perhaps what we should be thinking about doing is asking men to apologise more um, rather than women to apologise less. that, That was mentioned Thatcher before, but that was sort of the criticism of Thatcher, that she wasn't really a woman politician. She just behaved like a man you know she dressed like a man she made her voice deeper she surrounded herself with other men so and she is absolutely despised and it's not to say that I approve of you know I'm not the same kind of politics as as she has but the way in which she's attacked as a witch you know and people celebrating when she died um that just hasn't happened to any of the male politicians who were in her cabinet um who shared her views or sort of politicians from before her who did you know equally quote-unquote bad things um so I, I think that that is very, very interesting. I think that highlights, you know, what I'm kind of saying about that if women emulate male behaviour, they trigger disgust in people. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. We could talk about this for the whole episode, but I'm very keen to get on to the um, public service broadcasting bit of um, Anne telling us all that we're going to live in destitution when we've retired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Times uh, Property and Money Editor Anne Ashworth. The deadline to apply for an individual savings account, an ISA, is less than a month away. Every year, more women than men seize the opportunity to open one of these tax-free accounts. But, and we need to change this, women overwhelmingly opt for cash ISAs, the safety-first option, rather than for stocks and shares plans. This means they are losing out on long-term gains. If women are to build decent savings, and in particular, better pensions, they need to learn to embrace risk. So, Anne, let's start with um, uh, investing for beginners. 
what is an ISA and why should we be putting money in it? Oh, it's so interesting. And I'm going to try not to bore you with this, but an ISA stands for Individual Savings Account. And it's a way to save tax-free. And a lot of people have ISAs rather than pensions. Now, they come in different shapes and different sizes. There are cash-only plans and there are stocks and shares plans. And you can contribute either the full allowance, 20000 to one of those plans every year, or you can drip feed money into a stocks and shares plan, which of which I'm a very great fan. And anybody finding the whole business tremendously complicated could A, read the Times ISA guide, which yeah, appears yeah, yeah, yeah. on March the 20th, <laughs> shameless plug here. But also what we've had in the last few years is the development of online financial supermarkets called platforms, which give you ready-made plans. And you would just look to see which funds, which stock market funds you could choose if you were just wanted to take a very low level of risk, a medium level of risk, or actually be incredibly adventurous. And I am absolutely fixated on the view that there are a great many people out there who don't realise just how expensive a good pension is and that they're used to the best things in life now, like going out, coffees, holidays, and they assume that they will be able to afford those in later life. But the group of wealthy retirees that we see at airports off on another (laughs) very nice holiday are the beneficiaries of final salary pensions, which are largely disappearing to new members. We, from those people, we gain an an idea that maybe retirement is quite comfortable. It will not be for today's generation of workers. And sometimes I love to shop, but I, I am the person that stands there and thinks, now, put this into a pension plan instead and I will be comfortable in the future. You're making well, me feel so guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I know all I'm thinking is I've got an ISA and I put money in it each month and then after a couple of months I take it out again to pay for a big bill or something. No, but you which are... I know is, I know, is, I know that's naughty, Anne. But, but you need to, that, that, you need, everybody reads a rainy day savings account and we don't save enough in this country. The Germans put 10% aside so they feel, and then that allows them to be more adventurous in their choices because they've got that solid buffer of cash. So we should take should 10% be... and put it away so you don't touch it again for the long distant future. Yes, I really do believe that. I think that we need to develop a savings culture also being interested in your investments is can be a really great pastime. Um, so what about you, Rachel? Are you are you risky with your money, or do you play it safe? No, I'm I'm very risk averse. Not that I have very much money, but when, <laughs> if I ever do, I'll go for the sort of most cautious savings account. I don't want to think I'm going to throw it all away. I'd rather have know that I was getting a guaranteed, very small interest. This is spend. exactly who you're after, isn't it, Anne? You need to take a level of risk to have rewards. And one of the most things that most worries me in my job is there are plenty of successful women who aren't prioritising saving or aren't prioritising their building a retirement pot. And the only way to do that is to take a level of risk. And you can, there are plenty of guides to put you on the right path, but you need to take a deep breath and just plunge in. Otherwise, Women who are currently living very well, having very nice lifestyles, will not be enjoying those lifestyles in their later life. 
On the other hand, can't it go too far? Because I remember speaking to Harriet Harman during the Lehman Brothers crisis, and she said, you know, if this was Lehman Sisters, we wouldn't be in this situation, that it was that kind of risk-taking, testosterone fueled environment in the city that kind of brought the world to its knees. We're talking risk-taking, which runs into folly. I'm talking a portion of your savings being in something which might well lose value, but could in the long term give you a much larger reward. And I think it is quite interesting that more women than men haven't opened an ISA, but more men go for stocks and shares. And what about you, Caroline? Are you a, what are your savings like? Um, I don't have any at the risk of Anne's wrath. Once all the, just, the money comes rolling I, in from the book. Am I, I sort of, I worry that I'm too old. You know, I'm 35 this year and I worry that I've left it too late. And I find, feel so overwhelmed no, by the whole peak, thing. I think you are totally target audience am for I? Anne's, okay. Anne's pages. Yes. Um, I, know, I know it's important. I mean, you know, one of the things that I actually cover in the book is that poverty and old age is massively feminized um, because of the fact that women don't tend to save. And it's partly also because of women's unpaid care work. It's much harder for them to save um, because they have to work part time and particularly sort of state pensions, therefore, are paid out much less to them. One of the things that makes me really angry that I uncovered in the book, um, maybe, Anne, you can you can make the government fix this, is that the threshold for auto enrolment is set too high for women to make use of it in that a lot of women are earning enough to be auto-enrolled but because into, of interpensions interpensions yeah. but because um they tend to work more than one job to fit in their unpaid care work and more than you have to have you have to meet the fresh threshold in one job rather than in well, all two. your work yeah, combined yeah. they're not being auto-enrolled and i just find that absolutely staggering you know who designed that well a man designed that um but yeah, I find I find pensions overwhelming and terrifying and I find ISIS overwhelming and terrifying. And I don't know how you're meant to choose. How am I meant? To, I don't know anything about it. I'm going to, as soon as we get our ISA guide out, I'll put one in the post to you. <laughs> Thank you. you a link. <laughs> now, auto-enrolment is a very interesting thing. That's the workplace pensions for people who don't have a company pension scheme. It has been massively liberating for women in one sense forcing some of them to save when they wouldn't have saved before. But for low-paid women, it has been a bit of a disaster. And I think there are a great many people pressing for change on that because auto-enrollment, it's a jolly good thing. But if you think about just how many systems have been developed by men, universal credit mm. was developed by men who are good money managers who have never wondered where they would find £10 to feed their family. And too many of these schemes are designed by people who are affluent, possibly a member uh, in a household where there are two people earning good money, and they need to be able to put themselves outside that and try and think what it's like to have the universal credit paid to the man. He thinks he's in the money and maybe goes out and has a good time. But again, let me speak up for Amber Rudd. She has given the go-ahead to the pensions dashboard, which is going to be a great thing for women. It's going to be the online service that enables you to see where all your pensions are and what they're worth. And it will serve as a wake-up call to many women in particular who need to put more money aside. And for that reason, and also her great coats, you know, Amber Rudd is a, <laughs> is a heroine. Last question Anne, before we move on. Couples and joint accounts or should we have our money separately? Is it 
is it a sort of old-fashioned thing if all the money's going to one pot and, you know, or, or should we keep our money separately? Okay, boring domestic detail alert. Um, my husband and I have a joint account. We each have our own separate accounts. And we run the joint account like the business. That's the business of the family and the household. And each is responsible for their own spending and investments. And I think um, I come from the generation where women didn't have the money that my generation has enjoyed. And I just think it's a really great thing. I just sometimes I was just thinking here of the opportunities afforded to me and my friends that our mothers didn't have. I have a feeling, Caroline, that if nothing else, we'll see Anne in the airport. Uh, <laughs> if one person's going to have an absolutely massive pension. I'm pretty sure that I won't. It's yes, no, we, we, we won't be in the airport. We'll be well, dropping I Anne do, off. I do exactly what you did. I did once open an ISA and then I took the money out to pay Ca- for a bill. Yeah. So. Caroline, <laughs> Jane Austen's going to be a, on the banknotes, right? Okay, you've got to put, you've just got to put a pile of those aside every week and think, that is what I'm saving. Do it for Jane. Okay, I'll do who it for was, Jane. Who was in that? Because whenever you read the Austin novels, it's all There's about... There's no mention of the pensions dashboard No, no, there, but it's it? about female disempowerment. No, that if is. you didn't yeah. marry well, yeah. you would fall down the social scale. Okay, Let's you, see them in that way. freaked me out, Anne. I'm going to try and send me the thingy and I'll look at it. <laughs> right, you see, I told you, it's all public service broadcasting. <laughs> Um, Right, um, in a moment, we're going to finally get around to talking about um, uh, Caroline's book. We'll be back after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Jolly. Quick reminder, you can come and see us record an episode live at Podcast Live in London on Sunday, April the 7th. Go to podcastlive.com and use the code TIMES19. To get 10% off. Right, this is Caroline Criado Perez. Imagine a world where your phone is too big for your hand, where your doctor prescribes a drug that is wrong for your body, where in a car accident you are 47% more likely to be seriously injured, where every week the countless hours of work you do are not recognised or valued. If any of this sounds familiar, chances are that you're a woman. 
I can't, everything I've read about your book so far is absolutely fascinating. I mean, partly because I find all data and all that stuff and the way that it's increasingly driving everything and algorithms and who's, you know, who rules the robots and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's Men fascinating. Men rule the ro- robots. Men now. rule the robots, and that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you so see your book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. There was, just talk us through some, you, you touched on some of them there, but just talk us through some of the... Uh, so I've, I was trying to make a list of the ones that I've seen you mention. Heart attacks. What are mm-hmm. the issue? What's the issue between uh, men and women with heart attacks? Well, the basic problem is that uh, typical female heart attacks are considered atypical, um, and as a result, uh, first of all, women aren't realising that they're having a heart attack because we are taught in sort of public health information that the typical male heart attack so pain in the chest down the left arm is just the same heart attack symptoms for everyone but actually women tend to experience things like breathlessness nausea indigestion um, and often don't have the chest pain so they don't necessarily realize they're having a heart attack but on top of that doctors are missing it as well and that's partly because of doctors not being trained properly in female heart attack symptoms it's also because a lot of the diagnostic tests have been designed around typical male heart attacks um, because women's heart attacks may be mechanically different not just symptomatically different Um, and basically as a result uh, for decades now women have been more likely to die following a heart attack women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they're having a heart attack you know and this is a huge issue and actually we often think of cardiovascular disease as a a male disease but actually it is the number one killer of women in the UK and the US Um, and actually amongst low-income younger women um, they are more likely to have a heart attack than men. So this is, you know, this is a really serious, huge problem. And it's basically because we've been designing medicine around the male body. And we see in, because of most films, all the leads in films are always yeah. men. So the people who have heart attacks in films are yeah. men who clutch their chest and fall over. And that's it's that called the Hollywood heart attack for that reason. Okay, air conditioning. Air conditioning, yes. So um, this is more about dis- discomfort than dying. Um, but it's less uh, serious, but it's yes. still you know, no, but I it's mean, sort of pain I if you're the, cold at work. Every the day. reason that I sort of included examples from, you know, just the inconvenient, you know, things like not being able to reach the top shelf in your home through to uh, car crash safety, where you're more likely to die if you're a woman, is that I really wanted to show that this is a way of thinking that is absolutely pervasive. Mm. And the problem is specifically this way of thinking, this way of thinking that uh, human means male and women are this sort of niche minority, atypical, non-default. And it's like a thing that's nice to do on top, you know, exactly. making it's it work for women is nice. but Tick box exercise. Yeah, exactly. um, but actually, it's important that we consider, you know, both halves of the population from the very beginning. So the, the offices thing, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have been in offices where the women are complaining that it's too cold. Um, and that is because the office temperature, um, the formula to determine it, was set at the basal uh, metabolic rate of your typical 40-year-old man. Um, and it turns out that women doing light office work have a lower metabolic rate than um, than those men. And so office temperatures are about five degrees too cold for women. Um, and that is why you will find that women are wrapped up in blankets in the summer while men are wandering around in their shirt sleeves i don't want to ruin the whole book by going through all of them um, one of the ones which really struck me was nail bars so because basically you make the point that um there's been loads of research into the toxic impact of men's work mm-hmm. whether, you know working down mines and asbestos and all yep. that sort of stuff um but almost nothing into uh the sort of modern yeah uh, occupations that women well, but tend also to do. the the sort of non-modern yeah. you know things like cleaning uh cleaners often will lift more in a shift than construction workers but we know everything about safe lifting um in men and also what the limits are nobody's bothered to do it for 
cleaners because that's just women's work and they yeah. just get on with it. Similarly with male bars, n- sorry, nail bars, um, you know, we don't know anything about uh, the toxic fumes that are being released um, the dust from the acrylic and interestingly or not interestingly infuriatingly I should say you know even when women were working in the male dominated industries um, and so therefore data was collected on them it was discounted from the studies as confound as a confounding factor so we just have no data on women's bodies whatsoever either women's occupations or even women who were working in male dominated occupations what do you make of this Anne? well I'm sitting Does here with, with some of on? my questions <laughs> answered this is why when I was, um, somebody suggested I take a well-known flu cold remedy, I felt as if I was out to 17 lunches, obviously wasn't uh, made for me. Why the back of my chair is basically a wardrobe of wraps and cardigans. Why I'm indeed sitting here with my jacket on, feeling very chilly. Also the reason though, I no longer go to nail bars because I was slightly concerned about the status of the workers, whether they were here legally, but also if I felt as if I was choking on all the dust comb coming off those acrylic nails, why do people have them? Um, shouldn't the workers be protected from this? And then they have some tiny mask and it's mm. not enough. But don't we think the whole of the world has been designed for, for men? I just cite going to the theatre the interval at a theatre is for is for women the queue for the powder room. Mm-hmm. That is, you don't have a drink, you queue for the powder room because somehow that they there are fewer women's loos. And there is a sort of sense of comradeship in those queues and people are saying, why don't they change it? And indeed they have at some newer theatres. But you can sometimes feel as if the world was not modelled for you as if you were the aberrant element. Actually, I do go into exactly that issue of the cue for the lose in the book, and I'll tell you exactly why it is. It's because in plumbing codes, um, it has actually been put into them that there should be 50-50 floor space for men and women. And that seems equitable until you factor in things like urinals, which means that more men can come in and out um, of the same floor space than women who have cubicles. And then you also factor in the fact that a huge proportion of women will be on their period at any one time, so they're more likely to need to take more time. Um, also, women are more likely to be with children. Women are more likely to be older. So for all those reasons, women take longer in the loo. So you've got, A, women... Women, men- I assume, are more likely to wash their hands. Well, but it's... It, I, I, I think actually the, the research does suggest that, but I don't think it's actually because of that, because it's for the cubicles yeah. that you're queuing. I mean, it's you, not and for and the... it is. I mean, you can literally, just yes. in terms of floor space... You so basically, women need more space. floor space yeah, than yeah. men. And it, it's just this idea of not having factored this in, not having thought about women's needs and having designed things as if men's needs are the typical. But there are also then somebody said, well, it's fine because we've done 50-50, ignoring yeah. the fact that floor space is not 50-50. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Wait, so do you think there's an impact on politics as well? That if you've got a male cabinet minister signing off on policies, all the, if all the policies are seen through a sort of male perspective, that women are seen as sort of an afterthought? Definitely, I think it's made a difference having more women uh, at the top of government. So issues like childcare really are now seen as a mainstream thing. And I think that's incredibly important that rather than being seen as side women's issues, that's about family. So it's parental leave, whether it's men or women. uh, And that makes a real difference to people's lives. Do you know, I'd love to ask a question. We know now who is going to medical school, and it's about 50% women. At what 
stage will that cohort change medicine for women? Or are the codes and structures within that world so solidly built that they cannot be changed? Because one would have thought that these women would have been saying, I'm not sure about that. It is. I mean, it's a huge problem. Um, so I did. I looked into this quite deeply for the book. And basically, it does start with the way doctors are trained. They are not taught about female and male bodies in the same way. So male anatomy is anatomy and female anatomy is added on in a sort of very vague way at the end, you know, in an elective course. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it, it just sort of perpetuates. However, having said that, there is some cause for hope in that uh, a recent bit of research came out looking at um, how the gender of the researchers impacted on whether or not gender analysis was done in research. And essentially, if you have women, um, particularly women in leadership roles, when they are researching the body, they are much more likely to gender analyze their data. Um, so, I mean, that just for me brings it back to the thing that I'm sure everyone is sick of me saying, which is that female representation really matters just because women are less likely to forget that other women exist, but also women have these experiences. You know, you look at the things like the Apple um, iPhone, their health tracker, forgetting to include period tracking. If you had had enough women in the room coming up with this comprehensive, you know, they called it a comprehensive health tracker, they wouldn't have forgotten to track periods. In fact, you even talked about how Apple are now making phones which are too big for... Uh women's hands yes well that's been going on for a while now yeah um and it's it's sort of baffling into you know when the, with the tweets that i've been getting the two things that have cropped up most have been oh my god that's why i keep dropping my phone why i can't take a picture one-handed why my hand hurts so much from holding my phone and also in cars the seat belts um cutting across women's chests not knowing where to put it on their pregnancy bump or on their boobs because the seatbelt has been designed around the male body and tested using a crash and test dummy which looks a like a crash test dummy yeah, yeah. in fact someone sent me this um pregnancy special pregnancy um sort of addition for a seatbelt that pulls the seatbelt down underneath the baby bump um and I looked at it and it said it's been tested on ECE regulation 16 and I looked into ECE regulation 16 um and the gender of the the mannequin isn't specified in the regulation. But if you look at the website of the production company who produced these mannequins, it is, in fact, a 50th percentile male. So this pregnancy bump, um, uh, you know, addition seems to have been tested on a male crash test dummy. Brilliant. Now, what's your, <laughs> just finally, what's your sort of hope with the book? Who is it that you'd... Ideally, in terms of sort of trying to get change to happen, do you have to go sort of industry by industry? Is it is it something that government should be involved in? If you, you know, who, everyone has to read it. Everyone has to everyone read has it. To read everyone it. has to read but it. I, but who, who would you be beating a, a policy makers? I want all politicians to start recognising that this is an issue, and everyone who's designing anything, you know, designing tools, designing tech. Absolutely, I want everyone in the tech industry to read it. People who are designing algorithms, who just you know, it's such a male-dominated industry and they just do not seem to have grasped yet what a huge issue they have in terms of the male-biased data that they are training their algorithms on. Um, and it's a huge worry because these algorithms are increasingly running our lives from, you know, deciding who gets a job to increasingly being used in the medical world. And can you imagine, you know, the things I've been talking about, about the data we have on female bodies, letting an algorithm loose on that? It's, I mean, it's terrifying. And what's particularly terrifying to me is that the tech world doesn't seem to have a grasp on this. And secondly, that 
algorithm software is often protected, you know, as a trade secret. And so we can't even, even analyze them to see whether they're putting they've... In. Exactly. Yeah. It even went down to, um, you talk about how sort of smart speakers in homes are more likely to listen to men than listen to women. Cause yeah, because they've been trained been... on mainly male databases. And so female voices are just this sort of, what the hell is that? You know? Um, and so women are having to, yeah, so I had this funny experience having, I'd just done the research on the voice recognition software and I was in the car with my mum and she was trying to get her voice recognition software to call her sister and was, you know, swearing at the system because it wouldn't understand her. And I suggested, you know, why don't you try lowering your voice? And it worked first time. There's also something wrong with my voice because I can never get mine to work either. But I'm obviously in that the weird bucket. <laughs> Well, it's absolutely fascinating. Invisible Women Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Cavado-Perez is out later this week. On Thursday. On Thursday. Fabulous. Um, as always, don't forget to subscribe to my uh, morning email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. But for now, my huge thanks to Rachel Sylvester, Anne Ashworth and Caroline Cavado-Perez. I've been Matt Jolly. Goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,